0: Section 11 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents 1901 to 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J Troop in New York City. Section 11 Theodore Roosevelt December 6th 1904 Part 1 to the Senate and House of Representatives. The nation continues to enjoy noteworthy prosperity. Such prosperity is of course primarily due to the high individual average of our citizenship taken together with our great natural resources. But an important factor therein is the working of our long-continued governmental policies. The people have emphatically expressed their approval of the principles underlying these policies and their desire that these principles be kept substantially unchanged although of course applied in a progressive spirit to meet changing conditions. The enlargement of scope of the functions of the national government required by our development as a nation involves, of course, increase of expense, and the period of prosperity through which the country is passing justifies expenditures for permanent improvements far greater than would be wise in hard times. Battleships and forts public buildings, and improved waterways are investments which should be made when we have the money, but abundant revenues and a large surplus always invite extravagance, and constant care should be taken to guard against unnecessary increase of the ordinary expenses of government. The cost of doing government business should be regulated with the same rigid scrutiny as the cost of doing a private business. In the vast and complicated mechanism of our modern civilized life, the dominant note is the note of industrialism, and the relations of capital and labor, and especially of organized capital and organized labor, to each other and to the public at large, come second in importance only to the intimate questions of family life. Our peculiar form of government, with its sharp division of authority between the nation and the several states, has been on the whole far more advantageous to our development than a more strongly centralized government." but it is undoubtedly responsible for much of the difficulty of meeting with adequate legislation the new problems presented by the total change in industrial conditions on this continent during the last half century. In actual practice, it has proved exceedingly difficult and in many cases impossible to get unanimity of wise action among the various states on these subjects. From the very nature of the case, this is especially true of the laws affecting the employment of capital in huge masses. With regard to labor, the problem is no less important, but it is simpler. As long as the states retain the primary control of the police power, the circumstances must be altogether extreme which require interference by the federal authorities whether in the way of safeguarding the rights of labor, or in the way of seeing that wrong is not done by unruly persons who shield themselves behind the name of labor. If there is resistance to the federal courts, interference with the mails or interstate commerce, or molestation of federal property, or if the state authorities in some crises which they are unable to face call for help, then the federal government may interfere." But though such interference may be caused by a condition of things arising out of trouble connected with some question of labor, the interference itself simply takes the form of restoring order without regard to the questions which have caused the breach of order. For to keep order is a primary duty, and in a time of disorder and violence all other questions sink into abeyance until order has been restored. In the District of Columbia and in the territories, the federal law covers the entire field of government, but the labor question is only acute in populous centers of commerce, manufactures, or mining. Nevertheless, both in the enactment and in the enforcement of law, the federal government within its restricted sphere should set an example to the state governments, especially in a matter so vital as this affecting labor. I believe that under modern industrial conditions it is often necessary, and even where not necessary is yet often wise, that there should be organization of labor in order better to secure the rights of the individual wage worker. All encouragement should be given to any such organization, so long as it is conducted with a due and decent regard for the rights of others. There are in this country some labor unions which have habitually and other labor unions which have often been among the most effective agents in working for good citizenship and for uplifting the condition of those whose welfare should be closest to our hearts. But when any labor union seeks improper ends, or seeks to achieve proper ends by improper means, All good citizens, and more especially all honorable public servants, must oppose the wrongdoing as resolutely as they would oppose the wrongdoing of any great corporation. Of course, any violence, brutality, or corruption should not for one moment be tolerated. Wage workers have an entire right to organize and by all peaceful and honorable means to endeavor to persuade their fellows to join with them in organizations. They have a legal right which, according to circumstances, may or may not be a moral right to refuse to work in company with men who decline to join their organizations. They have, under no circumstances, the right to commit violence upon these, whether capitalists or wage workers, who refuse to support their organizations, or who side with those with whom they are at odds, for mob rule is intolerable in any form. The wage workers are peculiarly entitled to the protection and the encouragement of the law. From the very nature of their occupation, railroad men, for instance, are liable to be maimed in doing the legitimate work of their profession, unless the railroad companies are required by law to make ample provision for their safety. The administration has been zealous in enforcing the existing law for this purpose. That law should be amended and strengthened. Wherever the national government has power, there should be a stringent employer's liability law, which should apply to the government itself where the government is an employer of labor. In my message to the 57th Congress at its second session, I urged the passage of an employer's liability law for the District of Columbia. I now renew that recommendation and further recommend that the Congress appoint a commission to make a comprehensive study of employers' liability with the view of extending the provisions of a great and constitutional law to all employments within the scope of federal power. The government has recognized heroism upon the water and bestows medals of honor upon those persons who by extreme and heroic daring have endangered their lives in saving or endeavoring to save lives from the perils of the sea in the waters over which the United States has jurisdiction or upon an American vessel. This recognition should be extended to cover cases of conspicuous bravery and self-sacrifice in the saving of life in private employments under the jurisdiction of the United States and particularly in the land commerce of the nation. The ever-increasing casualty list upon our railroads is a matter of grave public concern and urgently calls for action by the Congress. In the matter of speed and comfort of railway travel, our railroads give at least as good service as those of any other nation. And there's no reason why this service should not also be as safe as human ingenuity can make it. Many of our leading roads have been foremost in the adoption of the most approved safeguards for the protection of travelers and employees. Yet, the list of clearly avoidable accidents continues unduly large. The passage of a law requiring the adoption of a block signal system has been proposed to the Congress. I earnestly concur in that recommendation and would also point out to the Congress the urgent need of legislation in the interest of the public safety, limiting the hours of labor for railroad employees in train service upon railroads engaged in interstate commerce, and providing that only trained and experienced persons be employed in positions of responsibility connected with the operation of trains. Of course, nothing can ever prevent accidents caused by human weakness or misconduct, and there should be drastic punishment for any railroad employee, whether officer or man, who, by issuance of wrong orders or disobedience of orders, causes disaster. The Law of 1901, requiring interstate railroads to make monthly reports of all accidents to passengers and employees on duty, should also be amended so as to empower the government to make a personal investigation, through proper officers, of all accidents involving loss of life which seem to require investigation, with a requirement that the results of such investigation be made public. The safety appliance law, as amended by the Act of March 2, 1903, has proved beneficial to railway employees, and in order that its provisions may be properly carried out, The force of inspectors provided for by appropriation should be largely increased. This service is analogous to the Steamboat Inspection Service and deals with even more important interests. It has passed the experimental stage and demonstrated its utility and should receive generous recognition by the Congress. There is no objection to employees of the government forming or belonging to unions, but the government can neither discriminate for nor discriminate against non-union men who are in its employment or who seek to be employed under it. Moreover, it is a very grave impropriety for government employees to band themselves together for the purpose of extorting improperly high salaries from the government. Especially is this true of those within the classified service." The letter carriers, both municipal and rural, are as a whole an excellent body of public servants. They should be amply paid. But their payment must be obtained by arguing their claims fairly and honorably before the Congress and not by banding together for the defeat of those congressmen who refuse to give promises which they cannot in conscience give. The administration has already taken steps to prevent and punish abuses of this nature, but it will be wise for the Congress to supplement this action by legislation. Much can be done by the government in labor matters merely by giving publicity to certain conditions. The Bureau of Labor has done excellent work of this kind in many different directions. I shall shortly lay before you in a special message the full report of the investigation of the Bureau of Labor into the Colorado mining strike, as this was a strike in which certain very evil forces, which are more or less at work everywhere under the conditions of modern industrialism, became startlingly prominent. It is greatly to be wished that the Department of Commerce and Labor, through the Labor Bureau, should compile and arrange for the Congress a list of the labor laws of the various states, and should be given the means to investigate and report to the Congress upon the labor conditions in the manufacturing and mining regions throughout the country, both as to wages, as to hours of labor, as to the labor of women and children, and as to the effect in the various labor centers of immigration from abroad. In this investigation, especial attention should be paid to the conditions of child labor and child labor legislation in the several states. Such an investigation must necessarily take into account many of the problems with which this question of child labor is connected. These problems can be actually met, in most cases, only by the states themselves, but the lack of proper legislation in one state in such a matter as child labor often renders it excessively difficult to establish protective restriction upon the work in another state having the same industries, so that the worse tends to drag down the better. For this reason, it would be well for the nation at least to endeavor to secure comprehensive information as to the conditions of labor of children in the different states." Such investigation and publication by the national government would tend toward the securing of approximately uniform legislation of the proper character among the several states. When we come to deal with the great corporations, the need for the government to act directly is far greater than in the case of labor, because great corporations can become such only by engaging in interstate commerce, and interstate commerce is peculiarly the field of the general government. It is an absurdity to expect to eliminate the abuses in great corporations by state action. It is difficult to be patient with an argument that such matters should be left to the states because more than one state pursues the policy of creating on easy terms corporations which are never operated within that state at all, but in other states whose laws they ignore. The national government alone can deal adequately with these great corporations. To try to deal with them in an intemperate, destructive, or demagogic spirit would, in all probability, mean that nothing whatever would be accomplished and, with absolute certainty, that if anything were accomplished it would be of a harmful nature. The American people need to continue to show the very qualities that they have shown, that is, moderation, good sense, the earnest desire to avoid doing any damage and yet the quiet determination to proceed, step by step, without halt and without hurry, in eliminating or at least in minimizing whatever of mischief or evil there is to interstate commerce in the conduct of great corporations. They are acting in no spirit of hostility to wealth, either individual or corporate. They are not against the rich man any more than against the poor man. On the contrary, they are friendly alike, toward rich man and toward poor man, provided only that each acts in a spirit of justice and decency toward his fellows. Great corporations are necessary, and only men of great and singular mental power can manage such corporations successfully, and such men must have great rewards, but these corporations should be managed with due regard to the interests of the public as a whole. Where this can be done, under the present laws it must be done. Where these laws come short others should be enacted to supplement them. Yet we must never forget the determining factor in every kind of work, of head or hand, must be the man's own good sense, courage, and kindliness. More important than any legislation is the gradual growth of a feeling of responsibility and forbearance among capitalists and wage workers alike, a feeling of respect on the part of each man for the rights of others, a feeling of broad community of interest, not merely of capitalists among themselves and of wage workers among themselves, but of capitalists and wage workers in their relations to each other, and of both in their relations to their fellows, whom with them make up the body politic. There are many captains of industry, many labor leaders, who realize this. A recent speech by the president of one of our great railroad systems to the employees of that system contains sound common sense. It rims in part as follows. It is my belief we can better serve each other, better understand the man as well as his business when meeting face-to-face, exchanging views, and realizing from personal contact we serve but one interest, that of our mutual prosperity. Serious misunderstandings cannot occur where personal goodwill exists and opportunity for personal explanation is present. In my early business life, I had experience with men of affairs of a character to make me desire to avoid creating a like feeling of resentment to myself and the interest in my charge, should fortune ever place me in authority, and I am solicitous of a measure of confidence on the part of the public and our employees that I shall hope may be warranted by the fairness and good fellowship I intend shall prevail in our relationship. But do not feel I am disposed to grant unreasonable requests spend the money of our company unnecessarily or without value received, nor expect the days of mistakes are disappearing or that cause for complaint will not continually occur, simply to correct such abuses as may be discovered to better conditions as fast as reasonably may be expected, constantly striving with varying success for that improvement we all desire, to convince you there is a force at work in the right direction, all the time making progress is the disposition with which I have come among you asking your good will and encouragement. The day has gone by when a corporation can be handled successfully in defiance of the public will, even though that will be unreasonable and wrong. A public may be led, but not driven, and I prefer to go with it and shape or modify, in a measure, its opinion, rather than be swept from my bearings with loss to myself and the interest in my charge. Violent prejudice exists towards corporate activity and capital today. Much of it founded in reason, more in apprehension, and a large measure is due to the personal traits of arbitrary, unreasonable, incompetent, and offensive men in positions of authority. The accomplishment of results by indirection, the endeavor to thwart the intention, if not the expressed letter of the law, the will of the people. disregard of the rights of others, a disposition to withhold what is due, to force by main strength or inactivity a result not justified depending upon the weakness of the claimant and his indisposition to become involved in litigation, has created a sentiment harmful in the extreme and a disposition to consider anything fair that gives gain to the individual at the expense of the company. If corporations are to continue to do the world's work as they are best fitted to, These qualities in the representatives that have resulted in the present prejudice against them must be relegated to the background. The corporations must come out into the open and see and be seen. They must take the public into their confidence and ask for what they want, and no more, and be prepared to explain satisfactorily what advantage will accrue to the public if they are given their desires." For they are permitted to exist not that they may make money solely, but that they may effectively serve those from whom they derive their power. Publicity and not secrecy will win hereafter, and laws be construed by their intent and not by their letter, otherwise public utilities will be owned and operated by the public which created them, even though the service be less efficient and the result less satisfactory from a financial standpoint. The Bureau of Corporations has made careful preliminary investigation of many important corporations. It will make a special report on the beef industry. The policy of the Bureau is to accomplish the purposes of its creation by cooperation, not antagonism, by making constructive legislation, not destructive prosecution. The immediate object of its inquiries by conservative investigation of law and fact and by refusal to issue incomplete and hence necessarily inaccurate reports. Its policy being thus one of open inquiry into and not attack upon business, the Bureau has been able to gain not only the confidence but better still the cooperation of men engaged in legitimate business. The Bureau offers to the Congress the means of getting at the cost of production of our various great staples of commerce. Of necessity, the careful investigation of special corporations will afford the Commissioner knowledge of certain business facts, the publication of which might be an improper infringement of private rights. The method of making public the results of these investigations affords, under the law, a means for the protection of private rights." The Congress will have all facts except such as would give to another corporation information which would injure the legitimate business of a competitor and destroy the incentive for individual superiority and thrift. The Bureau has also made exhaustive examinations into the legal condition under which corporate business is carried on in the various states, into all judicial decisions on the subject, and into the various systems of corporate taxation in use. I call special attention to the report of the Chief of the Bureau, and I earnestly ask that the Congress carefully consider the report and recommendations of the Commissioner on this subject. The business of insurance vitally affects the great mass of the people of the United States, and is national and not local in its application. It involves a multitude of transactions among the people of the different states and between American companies and foreign governments. I urge that the Congress carefully consider whether the power of the Bureau of Corporations cannot constitutionally be extended to cover interstate transactions in insurance. Above all else, we must strive to keep the highways of commerce open to all on equal terms and to do this it is necessary to put a complete stop to all rebates. Whether the shipper or the railroad is to blame makes no difference, the rebate must be stopped. The abuses of the private car and the private terminal track and sidetrack systems must be stopped and the legislation of the 58th Congress which declares it to be unlawful for any person or corporation to offer, grant, give, solicit, accept, or receive any rebate, concession, or discrimination in respect of the transportation of any property in interstate or foreign commerce, whereby such property shall, by any device whatever, be transported at a less rate than that named in the tariffs published by the carrier must be enforced." For some time after the enactment of the act to regulate commerce, it remained a mooted question whether that act conferred upon the Interstate Commerce Commission the power after it had found a challenged rate to be unreasonable to declare what thereafter should prima facie be the reasonable maximum rate for the transportation in dispute. The Supreme Court finally resolved that question in the negative so that as the law now stands the Commission simply possessed the bare power to denounce a particular rate as unreasonable. While I am of the opinion that at present it would be undesirable, if it were not impracticable, finally to clothe the Commission with general authority to fix railroad rates, I do believe that, as a fair security to shippers, The Commission should be vested with the power where a given rate has been challenged and after full hearing found to be unreasonable to decide, subject to judicial review, what shall be a reasonable rate to take its place. The ruling of the Commission to take effect immediately and to obtain unless and until it is reversed by the Court of Review. The government must, in increasing degree, supervise and regulate the workings of the railways engaged in interstate commerce, and such increased supervision is the only alternative to an increase of the present evils on the one hand, or a still more radical policy on the other. In my judgment, the most important legislative act now needed as regards to the regulation of corporations is this act to confer on the Interstate Commerce Commission the power to revise rates and regulations, the revised rate to at once go into effect and stay in effect unless and until the Court of Review reverses it. Steamship companies engaged in interstate commerce and protected in our coastwise trade should be held to a strict observance of the Interstate Commerce Act. End of section 11. Recording by J Troop in New York City.